I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Ever felt lost in the forest of relationships, following a trail of breadcrumbs to show you the way? Have you ever wondered if there's a map out there or a mystical compass to navigate the intricate alchemy of relationships without losing a piece of yourself along the way? Or just wondered, what is a healthy relationship? How do I get it and how do I maintain it? Well, in this episode, we delve into the emotional wilderness of relationships with the brilliant Danae Logan, with a gentle focus on healing through depth psychology and holding space for our strengths and shadows. Danae guides us through the maze of self-reparenting and establishing true authentic connections as we forge our way into the three pillars of optimal connection. Danae Logan is a marriage and family therapist, a group facilitator, and an author based in Los Angeles. In addition to her work with clients in private practice, she is a mindfulness coach, a yoga teacher, and specializes in supporting couples and finding more fulfillment in their relationships. Danae utilizes her background in depth psychology to explore how each of us can reclaim the aspects of our authentic selves we've been conditioned to turn away from in order to maintain attachments. Danae is also co-host of the podcast Cheaper Than Therapy, her first book, Sovereign Love, A Guide to Healing Relationships by Reclaiming the Masculine and Feminine Within, is being released by Sounds True in May 2024. Ready for an adventure into the heart of relational magic and self-discovery? Let's delve in together. Mr. Nay, <laughs> Mr. Nay in the house. I don't know why Madam makes me like, oh. Oh, I'm Madam Danae. I'm not Madam, worthy. <laughs> uh, Madam Danae is not worthy? I don't know. I feel not worthy of a Madam. Like, I feel like that's like a wise crone or something. Maybe I'm just. Oh. You feel like you're not that. wise crone enough? I'm getting there, Scott, you know, more and more. What is the requirements for, <laughs> for wise crone? You know, as you say that, I think that maybe I am more in that range than like in the last couple of years. I feel like I'm more in that range than I was. Certainly, I think it's that's a conversation that I think is a little bit fascinating. I just finished reading Elise Lunin's book on our best behavior. Have you heard about that book? I've seen it. Well, it's like the deadly sins and like she breaks down how like all of the deadly sins and like how we're still like our society is really impacted by what we shouldn't be doing anyway. In there, she talks about how we've completely gotten rid of the wise elder in the crone and the wisdom of aging in women. And Mm. that that's a little bit by design that it's like you're either in this maiden phase, you're a mother, and then that's it. Like, other than that, you're kind of irrelevant. And I'm like, I feel like I'm like embracing my crone as you say that. So it's not a derogatory term, right? Madam or crone? No. <laughs> <laughs> Madam is a hot I'm word like, to I, me. It's not derogatory to me either, but <laughs> neither is from my perspective. But yeah, no, I think crone is, it could be certainly, I yeah. think we're like reclaiming it. It's kind of like witch. Like, I'm oh, nice. I'm really reclaiming my witch. You're reclaiming <laughs> witch your witch. Too. I'm reclaiming it all. <laughs> I love that. So what does crone mean to you? It is. It's like that wise elder, that woman who's seasoned. She's out of like the motherhood phase of life, if that were a phase that she was in. But she has a lot to impart in terms of wisdom that she's gathered up. But the society hasn't really celebrated that. What kind of crone wisdom are you going to drop for us today? I mean, we'll see. I mean, we will see. I was literally telling Vanessa, I was like... 
after your session, I was like, he might be the most intelligent person <laughs> I've ever had a conversation with. I'm like, that's fascinating to like experience that. But yes, we'll see what you think is why <laughs> so the, the verdict will be out. Wow. That is so sweet of you. And will you tell my eighth grade English teacher that? Um, <laughs> if your eighth grade English teacher is pretending they don't know that, they're... um. <laughs> That's about their stuff. For no, sure. I had the most amazing eighth grade English teacher. She probably saved Aww. my life, actually. Aww. Did you ever see that episode episode of Adele? <laughs> the concert of Adele, where no. she like thanked her elementary or high school teacher and as and I was so moved I like wrote to mine. You did? I did. She saved my life. She was the only teacher that was like, You're really smart. People just don't see it. She saw you. She's the one who put, when I was in junior high school, put me in high school. Oh my gosh. And was like, you're just bored. Mm. <laughs> you're not dumb, you're bored. I love that. Anyways, I, I think of her as one of those like wise elder witches. Yeah. Like when I think <laughs> I, back to her, like that's the image I get. God bless. Because I feel like there's so much about education in our school systems that don't really nurture that type of insight now. Or like, I'm sure at her time, she was probably even unique in seeing you in that way. But it's like, if someone's struggling in math, but they really thrive in art, then we need to focus in on math versus like, well, let's really, you know, nurture this love of art and say, that's obviously something that brings life to this child. Right. And so I love that she saw you and was like, no, you're just bored. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a strength-based approach. I mean, in, mm -hmm. in, you know, in therapy, it's funny that it's a radically different approach than like a traditionalist approach, which is to be like, okay, someone's hurting and what are their strengths? It's like, okay, they're having an episode of depression, but what are they still able to do? Wow. You got out of bed today? Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. Like that strength-based. Yeah. Yeah, one of my first supervisors was really strength-based, and I think it just completely guided the lens through which I've seen this work in such a beautiful way. And I love love what you're speaking to, that it's like there's either something I'm hungry for or something that is just like I'm not seeing within me in terms of like the truth of the deeper layers of who I am here, that like if we can like focus in on that, it like expands for that person. As like a therapist, and you work a lot with couples, which I always make the joke, God bless. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's funny because people will always be like, oh my God, you know, and I find, well, first of all, I, yeah. to your point, I think therapists either love working with couples and there aren't that many that do, but, or they just like won't. Like therapists yeah. are like, nope, get the couples away. And I, for whatever reason, I was like, I love it. This is fascinating. But I find couples work to be so inspiring because the people that actually come in to work on their relationships are mm -hmm. often so like attempting to be conscious, attempting to love one another well, you know, versus everybody else out in the streets <laughs> just kind of like freestyling. That, that's a strength-based filter though. Like being like, wow, you came in here not because you're broken, but because you are dedicated towards a conscious integration of a partnership or, or exploration of it. Yeah. I love Absolutely. that. <laughs> Absolutely. People might not recognize how revolutionary that is to sit with another human being who's perceiving you in your best, in your strengths, as well as holding the pain that might also be present. Absolutely. That's that tension of the opposites, that both things can exist at the same time and are equally valid and necessary to tune into. Yeah. Yeah. 
I would want you as my couples therapist. Aw, <laughs> that's, that's an honor. Thank you. I've done couples therapy because I was curious. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so bad. And, and like, look, it's, you, never, you never want a client uh, who, as a therapist. You never want a therapist who's your client. Yes. <laughs> They're I the think, worst. Oh, my gosh. So often I'll be like sitting with my therapist and I'm like, huh, let's see what you did there. That was well played. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I know that, that trick. That was, <laughs> I know that trick. I see what you did. That was, that was good. Well <laughs> yeah. But especially like, have you ever gone to a couples therapist? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and like, what's that like to have such a super skill? Like, can you take that hat off at the door? Well, early in my marriage, and yeah. I'm not married anymore, but I wasn't a couples therapist and had no insight. And I oh. think it was, it was challenging for me because I was... I think a lot of times the identified patient in our dynamic mm. and I was the problem. And so I just like felt picked on and like would be the one that didn't want to go back. But then later in couples therapy, I was a therapist and it was fascinating because I thought I thought there was so much I learned about the way that she self-disclosed and the way that she showed up in the room that was really useful and permission giving for me as a couples therapist. But I think to your point, a lot of why people don't think couples therapy is really effective is because from my perspective, most of it isn't. I think there's a very particular <laughs> lens. <laughs> like, oh, let's just get into it, right? Maybe it's because your therapist actually does suck. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, or the technique or, you know. And it's like, what is the goal of couples therapy? And I think for the most part, it's been to keep the relationship together. And I tell couples all the time, like the client is the couple and I want what's best for the relationship and the couple. And sometimes that's for this relationship to dissolve. Like my goal is not to keep the relationship together. If that's not in alignment with both people living the truest, most beautiful life they possibly can. Can I ask you the hardest question ever? Sure. How do you know <laughs> when it should dissolve versus like, I mean, people ask me that all the time and I'm just like, what do you think? Wow. You're, you're not going like to <laughs> You might like it. I don't know. Yeah. People are always like, really? I don't believe in mistakes. And I don't believe like, I think if two people like their relationship dissolves and they're meant to find their way back to one another, they will. So it's, it's a little bit like if this isn't working right now, I think we're so afraid of endings societally. I think we're so afraid of losing things and we want to like hold on tightly sometimes to things that I think need to change form for a while. I was married for almost 12 years and my kid's dad is like my best friend on the planet and our relationship has changed form in the most beautiful ways, but it couldn't have evolved into what I believe was meant to evolve into if we'd sort of like grasp onto like, no, we need to be in this marriage container. That just wasn't our path. And I think it was perfect. That sounds so terrifying. It really does. Mm. Of embracing <laughs> the art of letting go of relationship. Yeah. I still think there's more for us to unpack here because it's like, how do we know? Just because there's fights, should people break up? Because mm. first of all, we should normalize ruptures in relationship. Absolutely. But at what point is like, is the tipping point to say there's not enough of blank to sustain? And yeah. Like, what is the blank? Well, a couple things. First of all, I think if couples aren't fighting, I'm always like, well, that's concerning. <laughs> have some conflict because conflict is aliveness and it's like differentiation and like there's an issue if we're just <laughs> no conflict like agree on everything like that's not life force there but in terms of what you were saying like how do we know i think that every relationship 
that is thriving from my perspective needs three things, which is respect and inspiration and a shared mission. And I think that sometimes it becomes really clear that those components are not alive in this relationship anymore. And, you know, in like the case of my marriage, for instance, it was the shared vision of what we wanted to build in a life was just not really there anymore. And that can be for a variety of reasons. I was really young when I got married. And so I think sometimes it's like we have evolved and we've grown and it's like no fault zone. And that's okay. I think we're just such a society that's like, if somebody's marriage ends, that's a failure. I like really love to normalize, like nobody's failed here. That's not what's happening. Sometimes the courageous thing is to allow something to dissolve. I know (laughs) that melts my heart. And like, it's like, you know, we're so biologically designed to maintain Mm -hmm. bonds and like, you know, how heartbreak is the signal of a disruption of bond. You know, we have a physiological, physical pain that signals, Hey, something is not evolutionarily on track here. And yet, I love what you're saying because there's so much gentleness and compassion to the fact that we're kind of saying, fuck our evolutionary design that might've worked a long time ago so that we stayed in the caves and protected our loved ones in this way. And there wasn't a lot of other choices. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, I'm just acknowledging the tension in this way between our evolution and the compassionate statement you're making now. Yeah, it's so interesting. You said stay together in this way. And I think what was really interesting, and I'm a depth psychology person, so I kind of believe in synchronicity and I don't think anything's an accident really. But the timeline of when my marriage ended, I had lost a really close friend and it was like a month before we decided to let our relationship change form. And I remember thinking the night that we decided that we were going to separate, well, at least he's not dying. And so maybe I can love him better in a friendship than I am loving him in the space of us as a couple. And so I think what I really love and believe we are evolving into normalizing is it doesn't have to be this thing of like, you are dead to me and we are enemies now. And I support a lot of couples in doing co-parenting work when this is the decision that's been made, like how do we keep having sessions and figure out how we can do this in a way that is like filled with grace and respect for the fact that at one point we wanted to share our lives together, right? I don't think it has to be this thing that it has been where I lose this person completely because you're absolutely right. That is like such a, like on a nervous system level, deeply disruptive thing for us to experience someone that we've had that level of attachment to being sort of torn away from us. Yeah, I love the reframe in your language, which is like we're changing form or we're changing shape of the relationship. Mm. It's so different than this idea of relationships end or they cut off. And it's like, I don't know, I think about the violence of the end of relationships. And I often think about like, how are people at beginnings and how are they at ends? And everything else is a transition. (laughs) Yeah. Are you good at endings? Have you gotten better at endings? I mean, from the way that you're languaging it, I'm already impressed. Because I'm like, my endings are like, fuck you. (laughs) I'm going to burn down your house. Not really. But I would like to get better at endings where it's like, um, hey, this 
just didn't work out in this form, the way that you're saying in this incarnation, in this shape. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I'm always the most grace-filled <laughs> with endings. I, it certainly is a practice, but I will have resistance. But I think that what I attempt to make the practice is, you know, asking what has this come to teach me and what am I being prepared for? And it just feels a little bit like if whatever this is, is what I'm meant to experience. And that's, that's a practice, especially in those like deep, dark moments. Sometimes that's like the mantra, the prayer for me is like, what has this come to teach me? What has this come to teach me? But that is the larger truth of what I believe. And I try to let go of the resistance as quickly as possible. Sometimes it's, you know, more available than other times. <laughs> <laughs> because you're human. Because you're gently yeah, human. The most human. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that also is a great pause point. You know, where it offers that sacred pause of going, what has this moment come to teach me? As opposed to this other person is an asshole and they're just yes. after me or they're mm. not enough for da 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 or even the attack on oneself where we go, I'm not enough. Like I'm so stupid and I'm terrible at relationships. Like that other side of the coin where it's like, what has this rupture or this friction or this moment of joy or this moment of love or this deeper amazing sense of contact come to teach me. Yes. I love the, that. Just, I was like sitting with your words for a minute. I was sitting really with beautiful. your words for a minute. <laughs> I was buttering myself up with them. I'm like, I just love the way you speak. <laughs> what you were saying about this thing of like, instead of being in the resistance of this person is a bad person or I'm bad at relationships or whatever the narrative that wants to come to the surface, right? That we want to defend against the pain with. And that's really what we're doing is attempting to not feel the grief. It's like, ah, you're an asshole, Right. And really, I think there's so many ways that I think we are being invited to see the other person's humanity and that they are not this omnipresent, all-knowing, never going to make a mistake person either. But we were saying before about a lot of the couples therapy modalities and why I've been challenged by them. And of course, it's like, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's like beautiful elements to what we have historically thought about the way to do couples work. But a lot of times from my perspective, it's so attachment based that it's really sort of reinforcing the idea that this person should be doing my reparenting work for me. And in the same way that we will expect when we are young and we haven't like sort of developed that part of our brain that sees our parents as, you know, human and like they are, they should know everything. They should love me perfectly. They're not human. I find that we start to do that in our partnerships a lot, right? And it's like, you should anticipate my needs without me having to speak to them. You should have known, you should have, you know, and it's, Nobody anticipates our needs without us speaking to them unless they are a parent and we are a pretty young child and especially like a child who can't articulate that need. And so a lot of ways, like I really think what we have lost in the attempt to create a lot of relational stability is the aliveness. It's the eros. It's why eros, excuse me. It's why most of the couples, very large percentage of the couples that come to see me, it's that there's just like a deadening in our relationships. It's like, we don't want to have sex anymore. We're just basically like roommates. All of these things that inevitably happen when we have decided this person should be my surrogate parent. And I just don't really think it's serving us to hold it that way. Yeah, that's not sexy. <laughs> it's not sexy. I don't have a like depthful <laughs> way of saying that, except like the way it's you describe not. that, I'm like, that's not sexy. 
It's not, but I mean, it's like our, our subconscious really does feel that that person yes, should. And I know in a lot of ways, we've sort of reinforced that societally, right? Like, well, he should have just known, like, what is he doing? Right? Like he's an asshole and it's just, well, yeah, he's human. Yeah. I think one of the, the most significant moments of healing in my life was a, when I gave up the sense that I need a relationship to be happy. Mm, that part. It was like I was riding my bike and I was like, I'm sad I'm not in a relationship. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just fine. And I'm enjoying <laughs> this bike ride. And it was yeah. like so simple. But I was like, oh, I'm okay with me. And the second healing was like a moment when I gave up the perfectionist in me or I put them to rest within relationship. And I was like, I don't need them to be the one. I'm just with this one. Yes. Oh, speak on it. <laughs> I love it so much. What you're saying too, it's like good enough. And it's like good enough parenting. And it's like the one is so much pressure. It's like this idea that there's this omnipotent, omnipresent, omni whatever, omni, 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 human, <laughs> all, the all the fucking omnis that this person <laughs> needs to like satisfy. And then then I get something out of that, which is like, it detracts from like, what is the experience with this person as opposed to the pedestal conception of what a relationship should be like? I love it. You know, I think what you're describing when you talk about being on your bike and actually dropping in and saying, actually, in this moment, though, I'm okay. There's a narrative, a lot of which I've been conditioned to hold, that I am incomplete until I am partnered. And so if I actually drop into how I'm really feeling in this moment, I'm actually okay. And I think that's important for us to start to normalize and make a thing that we do in all the things in our lives, but I think especially in our partnerships, bringing that mindfulness into the relationship is something I work with couples a lot on. Like, what is the story I'm telling myself about this person and who they should be for me and what they did wrong? And that pedestal thing that you're talking about is so important because in a lot of ways, it can feel like it's loving to have someone on a pedestal, but it's actually really dehumanizing, right? It's the fucking worst. <laughs> totally. Don't put me on a pedestal. Please. I went on a date, like maybe six months ago, and this individual was pedestaling me from the beginning. It was a first date, and they were like, oh, you're so amazing. I can't wait to take you to my castle in France. And I was like, what? First of all, okay, you're keep going. I'm listening. <laughs> Right? Oh, really? And they were like, and you're so amazing. And I, I, you know, like all these things. And I just paused this person, this guy. And I was like, hey, I love that you're on a date with this fantasy version of me in your head. But I'm wondering if you could come back and get to know me. Yes. And he was like, oh, oh, sorry. I didn't realize I was doing that. And then went back into it. And I just, I gently said, I'm going to end this date here. If you'd like to continue the date with the fantasy of me, you're welcome to, but I've had enough for this evening. <laughs> the pedestaling, it's like, you can only fall. That's right. You can only fall from the fantasy they have created. And that is the only physics of that positioning that is possible. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, I was just thinking about what that feels like for you, right? Like, because then I'm in this situation with sort of a caricature of this person because they're not being present. They're sort of projecting all of this 
energetic. I need to be something for Scott to feel something. And you're not actually here with me. I think it's, I heard someone say, if you put someone on a pedestal, they're going to treat you like a fan, which means that they're going to be a little bit like, you're freaking me out, which is essentially what you were feeling. But yeah, we do that in the beginning of relationships. And then when that humanity, and maybe not to the extent that you're describing with this person, but we do do that a lot. Like, I found the one and now all of the things are going to be settled because I found this person. And when they drop down off that pedestal into their humanity, we feel disappointed or like they've let us down or I don't know. But was that really on them? Was that really something that they did or was that something that we projected onto them? I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. I don't know about you, and when, when you've been pedestaled, I find that I quickly start throwing out all the most terrible things about me to try to like de-escalate the pedestal. <laughs> totally. totally. Like I'm like, I have insecure, anxious, avoidant, whatever attachment style. Yes. It's not true, but I'll just start like throwing things to like counteract. <laughs> just start making stuff I'll just start up. making pathologies up just to like counterbalance this thing that feels so uncomfortable in the room. Oh my God, I love what it. What do you do? <laughs> How do you rectify a pedestal? I, I'm like, I haven't made things up, but now I might. I love Try that. it. It's fun. <laughs> I'm like, I have, a, I have enough uh, character things that we can throw out without me making stuff. I don't need to make anything up. <laughs> Scott, there's plenty. But I, I think, let's see, I have like, I have a tough time sometimes staying on track with the thought. So there's a thing. Oh, was that me pedestaling you and you telling me what no, that, Well, that oh. was me. T- I don't know that you were pedestaling me, but that was me, like, for anyone listening, <laughs> telling you about some of my faults. Since I had a baby, I find that, like, I will get a little bit brain foggy or, like, yeah. I'll, I'll have a thought and it'll go and then it'll, another one will come in and I'll be, like, with clients, like, hold on, it'll come back. And it does. But I find that I get a little flooded with thoughts sometimes. I'm going to strength base that and just say, you're so brilliant That there is multiple streams of thoughts (laughs) with so many precious gifts colliding and caressing each other. And sometimes it's hard to discern all of them at once. I will receive that with so much gratitude. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's a beautiful reframe. I love that. And yeah, I think that I'm unbelievably introverted. And so there's a way that like I I get like social anxiety. And my friend Vanessa, who we did a podcast the other day with you, 
we always sort of normalize when we start retreats. Like Danae's really awkward the first day. So just like, no, <laughs> she's going to be awkward. She's not going to like, like, it's so funny. I'll be teaching in front of a group of like 30 to 40 people and I'm, you know, very animated and whatever. And then someone will come up to me in a coffee shop after and I'm like, eh, hello. <laughs> like, I'm so awkward. <laughs> like, it's just, I just am. I have like, I, I used to get a lot of social anxiety. It's much better now. And I think that the way that I work with clients on social anxiety is it's, you know, you're really sort of when you're experiencing social anxiety, you're concerned with how people are experiencing you. But if you can really be curious about the person in front of you, I have found that it really sort of softens that energy for me and makes it doable. And so all the human things and my awkwardness will come out. <laughs> but I'd love to, as you were saying, just speak to it. Yes, I'm going to be awkward. Give me a day or two and then I'll feel like safe and I'll drop in with you. I love awkward. I mean, <laughs> I heart awkward. That Aww. can we get that as a t-shirt? I think we need that as a <laughs> I t-shirt. I, I heart awkward. Yeah, it's like oh, I, I heart it. New York, but it's I heart <laughs> awkward. Yeah, I mean, I think in the awkwardness is a genesis of creativity. Mm. Like if you're, everything is so clean and perfect, like how much things can really emerge? Yeah, I don't Absolutely. know. I, that's what I told myself. Is like awkward. <laughs> That was yeah. my strength-based reframe to being I love that. like you, socially, very socially awkward. And I think, well, and I don't know, you know, from the limited about you told me about your childhood, I think sometimes when we are, like when we have certain gifts or we are just like sensitive to the world around us, that will manifest in ways that like we're just kind of paying attention sometimes. Like I see things that now I was like really sensitive to and everyone would be like, oh, she's such a sensitive kid. But I think I was just like really paying a lot of attention to things that I was like, that's kind of messed up. Like people are racist, and, you know, like, I don't know. I don't feel safe out here. Like those types of things. But it's like, was that something that was wrong with me? Or was that me just like really responding to the world around me? Yeah, I hear that. I mean, that's such an interesting point of both the... I mean, we could call it hypervigilance, we could call it tracking, we could call it sensitivity. There's a lot of different kind of words for a sense of being perceptive to mm. the subtle energies and sometimes not so subtle energies yes. of our environment. I don't know about you, but like in that, my awkwardness came from being able to read all of that as a form of survival and not knowing how to turn down the volume of it but then not having any filter as to speaking to it. Hmm. So I would be like, why are you sad when someone's just standing there? And like, I don't even know them. They're like a stranger, you know, like that type of hyper perception. And then the inability to, to really filter much. You know what's so interesting about that, Scott? I was thinking. Yeah. That you have one of those energies that like you instantly feel safe with you. Oh. And I think that's why, because I, I won't be awkward with people that I immediately feel safe with. And I think it's like people that tell the truth or people that are just. Or have no filter. <laughs> I, I appreciate no filter because. I think I performed extroversion for most of my life. It was like, mm. like, who do you need me to be to fit in? And I really oh, wow. like was good at it, but it came at a cost. Like there was a lot of things that that brought up to like have to always be performing. But I think I've always people like you who just don't filter things and say the things that nobody's saying. Like, I always think there's a safety in that. So thank you for being that way. Oh my gosh. My pleasure. I, and I, <laughs> we did an episode on safety isn't 
universal, mm. which I love because I'm like, ooh, what you find safe in that for me, a lot of people don't. Oh my gosh. Which is like the great nuance of like safety is like, your awkwardness is what makes me feel safe too. Aww. But that might be too difficult for someone because they're, they may need something like very straight and direct. I think we have to do the work to practice being ourselves and mm-hmm. lean into that. And I don't want to say we have to just be ourselves because it's not, it's not that easy. We, we have to like lean into that and build that as a muscle. But I think when we build the muscle of showing up more authentically, the gift is that we find our people. We find the people that we feel that authentic sense of safety around because to your point, not everybody's going to love someone that's awkward. They're like, what's wrong with her? But some people find my awkwardness endearing. And so I, I got to like be me and just say, yeah, I'm a little awkward and I'll get there. But that's okay. I'm okay with that. I love your awkwardness. Aw, thank you. I want to take your awkwardness to the ice skating rink and just <laughs> have a day with it. I don't know what that means, but it I sounds really that. flirtatious and I'm into it. It made my heart happy. <laughs> My heart just really warm. Thank you. You know, you said two things that I want to come back to. One is the idea of how often we have to perform. Mm. The idea of performing to get our needs met, this idea of performing to be seen. I think so many of us can relate on some level to performing or overperforming. And yet there's this concept that is, kind of vague and it's thrown around, especially on like social media and and certain circles of like, be your authentic self. And I love that you said like, it's actually not that simple. (laughs) Like what does that mean? (laughs) And I don't actually fucking know what that means. Like I know myself by lots of deconstruction of of letting go of what I thought was myself. Mm -hmm. And then being in this existential puddle of like, I don't know who I am. And a friend of mine being like, that's your authentic self. (laughs) (laughs) I love that friend. But they're an existentialist, so that works for them. (laughs) But what for you is like, what is the pathway from, you know, these layers of performance, these layers of masks we wear with no shame of having worn them, no shame of having to perform and overperform as part of our survival approaches to life. And then how does that work in this idea of authentic self? Yeah. I love what you said. And I think there's so much in that about, to me, our healing is like a homecoming. It's a return to the idea that there was anything we were meant to be, to be worthy of belonging and love. And, you know, I think what I often say is, you know, when people are like, I don't know who I am, I will say, well, that's because you came here to create yourself and to continue Mm. to evolve into who you want to be, right? I don't think that we are a self that is just like a fixed state. I think I am constantly amazed at the ways that I am a different person than I was three years ago. And I had an astrology reading yesterday and she was saying, when you look at pictures of yourself right now, a year from now, you're not going to recognize yourself. That's like, she was talking about like the transits that are coming up, but she was like, it's going to be really transformative. And I was like, I believe you. That's amazing because there's so much. And especially at this moment in history, I think there's like, it's almost like an expedition of this individuation process collectively. Like we're all like, like more rapidly evolving, I feel like, or like we've just been going through these 
initiatory processes that feel really big, but I think that's by design and I think it's beautiful. And I think normalizing the idea that I believe this is a life school. And I think that we came into this life to get in the muck and learn all the lessons and that all of this is the curriculum and can't get it wrong. And I think radical self-forgiveness for me has been the most potent tool in coming into my authentic self over and over and over again, because I will feel like I like, whoa, like, you know, I'll judge myself. Like I just said that and I sounded ridiculous and I was stumbling over my words and it's like, "Eh, forgive me. Like I get to be human. And that becomes the practice of continuing to just be in the moment and be really filled with grace for myself. How do you register? This is such a weird question. How do you know? How do you register that you're in your authentic self for you? I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years thinking about like the armor that we put on to protect ourselves in the world. And I, I feel like I spent so much of my life really armored up and not letting people see what wasn't pretty, what was the messy and so much of like my reclaiming of the little girl that I was before someone put on me the ideas of who I needed to be to be acceptable. She really was just having fun. And so to me, I check in with myself, literally, like, are you having fun? If you're not having fun, like, what is the story you're telling yourself about why you can't have fun? And I find myself doing that at times that it feels ridiculous that I would be, you know, I'll be like doing dishes. And I'm like, are you having fun? No, I'm not. I'm going to go put on like some music that makes me feel like this can be a little bit more fun. But it just brings me back into my body and into myself and into that playful state of like, this can be a little bit less serious, all of it, than I'm making it. And again, it's not always accessible, but when it is, I try to bring the fun back in. That's such a great device to to assess, like, am I in my authentic self? Maybe I'll ask kind of the inverse question of like, how do you know when you're performing? I mean, there's certainly fear. There's a fear of how I'm going to be experienced. There's a fear of like saying the wrong thing, sounding silly, like, That's that thing that we were talking about, like the thing that comes as you get older. I have found in my 40s, I am so much more like, I don't care. (laughs) I just don't care. I have no Fs left to give. But I I, I really do feel like those moments you're describing are a lot less. I, I don't know that I think about it consciously, like I'm being my authentic self or not. I certainly, with so much grace for my younger self, had a lot of time where I was not showing up authentically and performing for, you know, belonging. And like, sometimes I'm in a supervision group with a lot of therapists, they're New Yorkers, most of them. And my mentor is just like someone who like is a really brilliant mind and I really respect her. And so in the beginning I would go in and I would have all of this like imposter syndrome and like, oh my God, are they going to think I'm going (laughs) to, you know? And I remember this one moment and this is like, you know how you have those moments that are like, that was a game changer moment for me. Yeah. Those defining moments. Yes. And it was like in the midst of like all of the COVID things and, you know, a lot of what was going on with therapists was that we were sort of grappling with like how to hold space for this and like all of the trauma and all of the ways like we didn't know what was happening and everyone was flooding in. And so we were having a conversation around that and I kind of disagreed with everybody in the group. And I was holding it through the lens of depth psychology and what was being shown in terms of our collective shadow. And I was like, I don't know, like, it's this whole thing. Like if someone's not wearing a mask, they're my enemy. And like, I don't know. And so I sort of said, well, I just feel like we might be missing an opportunity. And before I said it, I was like, 
uh, I'm going to say it like, and I, I was newer to the group and I like never spoke up that much. And I was like, I just feel like we're missing an opportunity to really like talk about like, but what is the shadow underneath this? What is the collective shadow of humanity that we're being shown? And as I said it, nobody said anything. And then my mentor was like, hmm. And she has a very like, you know, when she's thinking about something, she has a very serious face. And I was like, well, she hated that, (laughs) whatever. And I remember the session ended and I was like, well, I stand by what I said. Like, I believe I was right. And literally, Scott, like two minutes after I said that to myself, she texted me and was like, Danae, I'm doing this talk. I want to talk more about what you were saying about the collective shadow. Will you tell me more about that? And we had this whole beautiful conversation, but it was like the universe saying like, you've got to be you. Like, chips fall where they will, everybody else's opinion be damned, but that's the work, right? Like, how do you stay with yourself through those moments of everybody else in the room might think I'm a nitwit and that's okay. Like, I got my back. I believe in me. It's that weird tension. And you know, like, I love nuance. I'll just say (laughs) it. Where it's like, yes, I'm being my authentic self or my perceived authentic self. And so, I'm just saying things, but it's also like, I'm kind of an asshole. And it's like, well, which one is it? Am I authentically an asshole? Or maybe this is the difference. It's like, am I open to other people's perceptions of how it lands and the interaction of it? Well, I think that that's important, right? Because I like to bring it back to intention. And I think that if I'm holding the intention in whatever the interaction is, and I talk to couples a lot about that of being as grace-filled and as present as I can. And I'm gonna miss the mark because I'm gonna be human. But I think we're so quick to defend because none of us want to feel like we're bad people. So when someone gives us their perspective that we're being an asshole, if we can say, what part of me was being an asshole that maybe I'm not seeing? Like, where was there an asshole in me in my interaction? I think it just becomes... I don't know, a lot more productive and like an opportunity for growth than if we're just defending against the fact that that's not true and looking for the discrepancies and what they're saying to prove our point, you know? That's such a good fucking line. Mm. Hopefully it it takes down the armoring that comes up. Because if, if I were to be like, you're an asshole, just to reflect back, <laughs> like you're being an asshole, can you think about this? It's like, hmm. That's probably not going to get far. But if like, <laughs> if, if I'm hearing you right, it would be like, hey, there's an aspect or a part of you that feels kind of assholeish to me. And I know that's not the full of you, the whole of you. And I'm kind of talking to that other part right now that isn't that asshole. That's right. <laughs> when I say like, that doesn't make me feel good when you use such like direct and uncushioned language. Or when you say things like that. I know you're being direct, but it also hurts. Absolutely. And I think we're defending the part of us that feels hurt so much that it can be really difficult for us to see the hurt in the other person. And that that is where that is the part of them that feels afraid, attacked, is the one that's calling us an asshole. But something that my friend John Kim says a lot that was such a like game changer way of holding relationships was seek to understand before seeking to be understood. And it becomes like the frame that like I will hold my interactions, you know, like I will try to empathize before I try to get my kid's dad to like (laughs) see where he's making me crazy. Like I look for his fear. And I think that that is to me the like, 
whatever is happening, whether it's societally or on an individual level, it just, if I can look for the fear in the other person, all of a sudden the energy shifts. Because when someone's afraid, we empathize. We don't want to attack. We feel like they're acting out of character because they feel afraid right now or because they feel somehow minimized or whatever the thing is. But if I can try to empathize and understand first, then I'm going to speak to what I'm feeling, that part of me that is hurt by you calling me an asshole in a very different way than if I think again, because the part of us that is defending is the part of you that like some part of you is believing that's true. I will always talk about like, is your bucket open to that thing that that person's throwing in your bucket? But if I put a lid on it by saying like, well, I'm sure sometimes I am an asshole. (laughs) I'm sure some some aspects of me, I, I have blind spots like everybody else, right? So if I put a lid on it, like that, that means something about me that sometimes I'm an asshole that I want to defend against. And it's like, I'm sure I am. And doesn't feel great to be called outside of my name. Can we think of another way to have this conversation, right? I mean, is your bucket open or closed right now? I mean, to what? <laughs> to more to more strength-based love bombing. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's also an interesting thing is like and I have dabbled in couples work. I've dabbled in doing relationships myself. <laughs> <laughs> I dabble. I dabble once in a while. <laughs> I mostly undabble more of the time. But like receiving love is sometimes harder than receiving the insults. Ooh, speak on it. Speak on it. Like there's a way in which everything is an opportunity to deepen the groove or deepen the bridge between us in relationship. And whether it's feedback or whether it's love, and it's interesting to notice for ourselves, like, what is the thing where our drawbridge comes up? What are the things in which, like, ooh, I can't really take that in. Like, if someone says, oh my gosh, thank you so much, you've helped me so much for whatever it is, right? Your work is so beautiful if you're, whatever you're doing and your drawbridge goes up, it's interesting to note. But to also notice like someone calls you an asshole and somehow your drawbridge goes down and you take that in and you absorb that more than the love itself that is also there at times. Oof. That was an oof. (laughs) Because I think a lot of times the more challenging critiques are easier to believe, like from the space of our wounding. And that's that thing of like, we'll have 500 critics that are just like, Scott is amazing. He's the most brilliant. And then that one critic that's like, eh, I thought his work was crap. We're like, what? Like, what? <laughs> like, I, like I, I, you know, like that person must be right because it's some part of us. Like the challenging stuff can feel easier to believe, right? And I think that it's really interesting in relationships with the anxious avoidant dance, which is something that comes up a lot in couples dynamics. And I think that I, you know, um. I've worked a lot to be more secure, but I tend to run a little bit more avoidant in my attachment style. And it's a little bit of what you're speaking to. It's that thing of like someone who just like wants to shower me with love and wants all my time and is just so present and all the things it feels like, what's wrong with you? Like, I don't know, like it it can feel a little bit like energy of contempt that comes up where if someone's just dismissive and hot and cold and breadcrumbing that can feel like oh that's kind of hot it's hot i know (laughs) 
I was recently dating someone where I was like, if you just breadcrumb me, I will call you more often. It's real. It's- <laughs> can, yeah. Wait, can we define breadcrumbing for those who don't know what that is? Yeah, it's a little bit like giving you just enough to keep you feeling like there's something here. But not like, you know, the breadcrumb is like, I'm fooling myself in believing that I'm being satiated by this, even though it's not the whole meal, but it's just enough that it's like satiating a little bit of my hunger. And I think it's a really common thing in dating where it's like this person won't completely leave me alone. They won't completely tell me they're not interested, but what's going on here isn't actually like fully engaged and wanting to be all in on this either. You know, it's so funny with the metaphor analogy. It's one of those two. Someone who, I'll just ask my eighth grade English teacher, (laughs) is like the breadcrumbing. I always had this image of it when I was younger, especially of what's a fairy tale where they have like the little breadcrumbs that they leave. Is it writing? No. Not that. It's with the the witch in the house and then she cooks the kids. Hansel and Gretel. Oh, Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel. Like, is it Little Miss No, that's two kids. Yes. And it's like little breadcrumbs that they're putting out and some, I don't remember the exact story, but like that's the image I have of like, oh, if you just follow the breadcrumbs, you'll get to the house and you'll find that either, like at first my image was like, you'll get to the house and then you'll live together. <laughs> and now I go, oh, you follow the breadcrumbs and you get to the house where someone cooks you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, a healthier, (laughs) fucked up image to hold. But that's important because I do think... (laughs) That's deep healing. (laughs) Just like I'm going to use that, I will quote you. Because it's important because there's some part of us that is holding on to the idea that the person that is breadcrumbing me, in the end, they're going to completely shift and become this like unbelievably loving, vulnerable, present partner that nothing about the way that we have interacted with them up to this point would suggest that that's the case. And yet we just, I mean, that's a little bit like the magical thinking within us that, yeah, I'm going to use that. Like, just know <laughs> the end of that story, they got cooked. So. They got fucking cooked. <laughs> you may be. And I think that's real. I think, you know, I was just listening to Oprah on Glenna Doyle's podcast and it was so like beautifully vulnerable, the conversation she was having. You know, she was talking about these moments that are hard, that are really like the universe life, like doing something to bring us back in right relationship. And I think a lot of times that person that is breadcrumbing us is really an invitation to start like giving ourselves the whole meal and saying, you know what, (laughs) I cook myself something on my own because A lot of times it's us being saved from the person that would cook us in the end, that would be like filled with narcissistic tendencies and really unable to love us in the way that we long to be loved anyway. So it's like, yeah, those breadcrumbs are actually our savior if we're willing to say, I'm just going to cook myself a meal (laughs) (laughs) for now. And that brings us back to like reparenting of like this idea, like this fantasy that usually the subconscious fantasy that we can find the person to fill in the gaps to which we didn't have as a kid. And the most powerful reparenting is the one we do with ourselves. That's right. And we also come to like these moments in the, the reparenting that we do where there's a deep mourning where we feel both ourselves being met as we rewire 
and we feel the absence of how that hasn't been there. And that's such a beautiful signal that we are in the process of deep healing. Oof. I felt that in my body as you were speaking to that, because I think it's such, there is something that shifts on such a profound level when we are able to feel what you're describing there. And I think that it, there's so much about relationships that is this like challenging dance that we're doing, because there's a lot of ways that we can be perpetuating these core wounds and outsourcing our power when we're believing that if this person will just love me in the way that I imagine they could, and then they're not, we're sort of reinforcing that narrative that it's because I'm not worthy of love or I'm I'm not lovable. And that's why my mom couldn't love me or whatever the story is. And we do need one another and we need to connect and we need to have a relational home within others. But what I find is so beautiful is when it happens and we're not seeking it from others. Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. our relationships are about what we can give because I'm really doing a lot of that reparenting work myself. But I think some of the most healing moments for me in relationship have been my friend Vanessa, when I wasn't looking for her to make it better. I wasn't looking for her to parent me, but she has said something that makes me feel so unbelievably safe and contained. And I will cry just thinking about it right now. But I think that is when relationship magic happens, not when we're like seeking it, but when we're just present with one another and all of a sudden that person gifts that to us. Yeah, thank you for saying that. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn. If that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. And I love that you have that relationship with Vanessa. Oh and I love God. that we're doing an episode all together in a couple <laughs> weeks live in LA. And that's such a great term, relationship magic. Because there is, yes, there is a beauty in reparenting ourselves, and there is relationship magic where deep healing happens. And there is something about entering into relationship, maybe subconsciously with that intention versus being in relationship and that occurring. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate you discerning the two. Like, 
I remember having a rupture in a relationship and I was like, hey, I'm going to try something new out and just share that I'm feeling hurt and here was the needs that maybe were missed. And like we worked it out and I was like, wait, ruptures don't mean the end and we don't have to like blow this up and that we can actually just come back together. Wait, what? <laughs> and that's that like repatterning magic that can happen. But I wasn't seeking that from this relationship. I wasn't seeking the completion of something that had been missed as a child. Oof. Yeah. You know, because the difference to me in what you're describing is you had the courage to say the thing. I think what we so often do in relationships is we feel resentment, we feel shortchanged, and we're telling ourselves the story about what this person should be that they aren't versus saying, this is what I'm feeling. This is the feeling that came up for me. And letting that person have the opportunity to see you. It's unbelievably vulnerable to be seen. So like that is the work. But when we do, I think the opportunity is for that person to like, you know, like that is like when we're in vulnerability, that person wants to contain that. That's the energetic exchange that I believe naturally happens if we will allow it to versus attempting to force it to, right? And then if that person can't do that, that's information, but it's information we need to have, right? Like if that person shames us or minimizes what we're saying or whatever the thing is, that becomes the moment of reparenting for myself where I got to say, well, you know what? I'm proud of myself for saying the thing, proud of myself for being vulnerable. That was hard. And I did it right. And that's the best we can do. Yeah. It's been that presence, that consistency, that ability to validate and show up for ourselves that may not have been present back then. Oof. Absolutely. I love to tell clients, like, I talk to myself in the mirror all the time. Like, I'll literally be like, I am proud of you, Danae. Like, good work. And it's like, it's such a, like, it feels funny. But I think that sometimes we need to do those things to, like, bring us back into that present space of, yes, I get to be that parent now. I get to be that thing that I'm longing for someone else to be for me. And just having those moments of, like, yeah, I see you. I see you. Mm. Can we go back to the three things you mentioned to the respect, being on a, the similar trajectory, and what was the third? Inspiration. Inspiration. I'm not sure if we can correlate those to like self this in that way, but I want to break those down a little bit more. Like, what is respect? What is inspiration? <laughs> asking yeah. for a friend, asking for a friend. <laughs> and then what is mutual alignment? What are those? When I think about respect, I think that there's we all have been in relationships where it's like, I love this person, whatever that means. But like, there's a lot that they're doing that like makes me not respect them. That's making me not feel like, you know what I heard someone say in like one of those Instagram memes, it's like, if someone told you, you were just like your partner, would that be something that sort of makes you recoil or makes you feel proud or excited? And that's really important information. Cause there's like, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of people who, if you said you were just like your partner, they'd be like, what? Like, and that's not a great thing. That really speaks to the respect that you have for your partner. I feel like, and 
that can be so layered as to why that is. I think that a lot of us had a lot of modeling that was like really normalizing disrespect in partnerships and that there are just dynamics there that I see play out with couples all the time where it's just like, again, we're not being present. We're just sort of playing out the roles that we saw played out. Like one of the terms that makes me like, is like when I hear people say, well, like happy wife, happy life. I'm like, 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 no, because we're not present. We're not like really articulating our needs and we're not respecting one another well when that's the case. So I get so excited to feel like my man is my king and like I am just so in awe of him. I think that's how we should feel about someone if we are choosing to partner with them. And I love to have expanders and people that like the way they move through the world is really like modeling for me something I want. Cause I think that that's like how we draw that energy in and like my mentor and her relationship with her husband and the level of respect for who he is as a professional, the way he shows up in the world, like it's palpable, you can feel it. But I think if we don't feel that it's a little bit like, why are you with them? Mm, shit. <laughs> that, I feel called out. No, no, that that's such a good question because it's also like just, to stay here for a moment, like it's also about what I choose to focus on. Because if I'm used to like nitpicking and not seeing them in their strengths and what they have to offer, then I'm going to default, at least me and I, I think a lot of us default to the negative as a form of protection. Like I was tracking all the negative things because it kept me feeling more empowered and safe. And if something happens, then justified. Oof. I mean, you just like go right to the deeper layers of our behavioral patterns. And I do think that that's what it is. I see. I'm just calling myself out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I love how in tune you are with your blind spots. I need help with mine. (laughs) Or what are my blind spots? But I think that's real. And I think that so often what I see come up so frequently is this thing of like, I'm controlling my partner and I'm attempting to like get them to be the person who I believe they need to be. And not only is that sort of like a hierarchical parental energy, it really speaks to like, I don't trust and respect you. And I think that is so important to be in that space of, I believe in you. I believe in like, even if it's not what I would do, (laughs) I believe in your, your ability to have agency and make decisions well for yourself. But again, that's a really culturally normalized thing to believe that there's, and this is something I talk a lot about is we've really been raised with a lot of ownership templates in partnership. And I think it's really important to hold that if this other person is a sovereign being and they have a right to autonomy, then I don't own them. And I think that can continuously bring us back into a space of presence in our relationships. When this person isn't mine, they're someone I get to be relating to in this way for as long as that's the case, but they're not mine to sort of maneuver and fix in the way that I think they should be. You better drop that relational mic. Oof. Oof. That's so hard. I just want to say that's so, I want to normalize as a gently used human. That is so hard to navigate. And what you just said is a beautiful map towards where we could head towards in relationship. So much of this stuff I like to really speak to is this is the practice. None of us do it perfectly. I think 
there's just something about like holding these larger truths to be the case that we can still really allow for, and nobody does it perfectly. Nobody holds their partner with reverence every day of their lives. (laughs) Like everybody acts out as their angsty teenage self. How many minutes a day should I be shooting for? Asking for a friend, asking for a friend. (laughs) I mean... I like to say like today was a day I didn't get it, but like for the most part, maybe like most days I I do better days than other. So you're saying like at least 10% of the day for reverence? Is that what I, I mean, I, I, I would saying? hope 10%. Yeah, that's, that's a good aim. Like if, if there's several days in a row that 10% feels tough, like maybe we should look at that. We should, you know. Yeah, you who's listening. <laughs> Maybe, maybe have a look. I don't know. We're we're thinking about. <laughs> so we've have we covered the realm of respect? I think so. I think, yeah. And then inspiration is so much in alignment with what I think is love now is a little bit different than what I held love to be a few years ago, which to me, love is this person and who they are make me want to be a better version of myself. I want to rise into all that I am capable of being. And this person feels like a catalyst, feels like an inspiration. They make me want to be a better me. Because if we really think about like when we're together and why we're together, I believe that it's not for the same reasons that it used to be. It's not about like divvying up land or assets or, you know, controlling women's sexuality. Like there's not all of these reasons to partner that we used to have in the past. So it's like, if we're going to make the conscious decision to partner, I think it should be the value of who this person is and the way they show up in the world makes me want to be better, inspires me to rise. And, you know, for me, that feels like the spiritual component of it is like the soul recognition of this other person. Mm. I love that somehow we've found our way back to that strength-based model too, of going even to be able to do that, we have to have those glasses on or the lens of the strength-based of like, ooh, this is their strength inspiring my strengths. Yes. I love that. And I love the way you speak to it. Yeah. Well, it is a mind shift. Mm-hmm. Again, as like, I don't know, I grew up with the perspective of you view deficit as a form of safety. Like their deficit might mean you don't survive. And so, it's important to know what's in deficit, what's not available, what are the things that are not here. And I don't love to just throw out neuroscience and be like, this is what neuroscience says. But, you know, like Rick Hansen speaks to it in a really beautiful way of like, we are more geared to focus on the negative. It takes three times the amount of metabolic effort to focus on the good than it does to focus on the negative because of how we are geared towards survival. And I I guess what I was wondering is, because I feel like that was to the point that you're making the way that I was raised and Mm -hmm. a lot of what I was taught you needed to do to be safe. But I do think it's a muscle that we build. And I'm wondering if you feel that as well. Totally. It feels like a flip of the channel. Remember those old school televisions where you had like a dial? Mm-hmm. We're, we're around the same age, so I'm hoping we remember these. <laughs> yes, I together. remember the dial, Scott. I remember the dial. <laughs> I was there. I was there. And like, <laughs> it's still when someone says TV, that's the TV I imagine. <laughs> but it's like, to me, it feels like, you know, I remember in my grandma's house, 
watching the Olympics and it's like there's a lot of effort in changing the dial to change the channel. It was sticky. It was old and as a television, it was still black and white. And it was, this was like the 90s. And that is what it feels like in my being when I go from that deficit model or that deficit lens to the strength-based lens. It's like it takes effort. It's a muscle to go click. Yeah, I think that's it, you know, and there's something so unbelievably compassionate for ourselves and holding. We seek out the danger to keep ourselves safe. We like really look for like what is wrong to like attempt to defend against feeling hard things. And there's something I heard Brene Brown say that I thought was so true. She was talking about, you know, she does all of this research on the ways that people are processing the world. And she was talking to someone she was interviewing and he was saying that he spent so many years just like focusing on what was wrong with his wife and all of the things that they struggled. And and he did it to like not get too close to her, to not feel pain. And then she died suddenly in a car accident. And he was like, if I'd just known, like none of that was going to save me from what I'm feeling right now. You know, it's like, we can't defend against life. And that to me is like the ultimate, yeah, we came here to suffer and to transmute some of that suffering when it happens, because we're going to go through hard things. And we can't defend against them by not allowing ourselves to feel the richness and the Raja of life either. Beautifully said. I really appreciate that. Like it's, we're not here to just be in the, the rose garden of life. There are thorns in that garden. There are insects that bite. And that is also part of nature. And I think the more we try to escape nature, the more suffering we incur. God, that's the thing. That's the like secret. The more that we defend against the suffering, the bigger the suffering gets. It's just such a like, oh, it's so counterintuitive to everything that we have sort of been wired to believe, but it just gets bigger. The the more we defend against it, it really does. Should we hit that third piece? The mutual alignment, the directionality? Yeah. And that to me comes back into the space of why we are partnering in the future of like, I believe our relationship structures are very much changing from what they've been. And they kind of have to because all of these like studies are showing people just are not partnering the way that they used to. They're either just making the decision to have children and, you know, not partner in the long term to just like work it out. Or people are just like saying, I'll pass altogether. We're having a partner of partners. <laughs> I mean, a party of partners. That's exactly. hard to say. Party of partners. Party of partners. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. And and listen, I think all of it is really beautiful. And we're moving into a space where it's like a co-creation, I believe, between the people that are involved in it. But I think coming together in partnership when it's justified is the new frontier in relationships. So it's sort of moving away from this idea that we're incomplete until we're partnered. Like, so-and-so is so great. Why are they single? They're single because they're a fully functioning human being who is complete. Why are we pretending like they're not? And then when I meet someone that is so incredible, there's this line in one of Bianca Sparacino's poems where she talks about like, when you meet that person that makes your cells dance, then that is the time to say, I couldn't not partner with this person if I tried. I'm just so 
enlivened by all that they are. But until then, I'm not incomplete. I'm fully experiencing all of the life that I came here to live. But that is like the shared mission, this shared vision. We're coming together because it's justified to partner in whatever we want to build. I love that. It is such an incredible gift and a relief to transition from that old paradigm of what relationship is. We couple for survival. We couple for completeness. We couple just to procreate and propel the evolution of our generations and our genetic (laughs) lineage and blah, 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 to we're doing this because we want to. We're doing this because that is what feels most aligned in my soul. We're doing this because I have agency, I have choice, and this is the choice I am making. Not out of necessity, not out of incompleteness, but out of this is just alignment. That's it. Yeah. I think Carl Jung talks about the individuation process or talked about. And, you know, I think we're coming into a time collectively where we are reaching that point of like in the self-exploration and the defining myself for myself, where it's not sort of like this external authority is defining what is a good life for me, but I am the inner authority that decides that for myself. And as you were speaking, I I thought of that, you know, that like we're partnering because we want to, and because this is what feels true right now. And we're not afraid of what will happen if at some point that doesn't feel true. And it doesn't mean that we're not still holding with reverence what it is to partner with another person, but that again, we don't belong to one another and and there's beauty in holding it that way. Mm. You have said so many things that belong on a (laughs) t-shirt. Thank you, Scott. And whatever awkwardness has allowed for your brilliance, I'm grateful for it. Oh, grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you for like coming onto the Gently Used Human and giving us the permission to be in the new frontier of relationship and breaking it down and doing it so compassionately that allows, I don't know, at least for me, it just it gives me a sense of possibility and hope and excitement as opposed to the weight, the weight of it. I'm really going to keep that. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much for your beautiful wisdom. I feel like I could keep talking to you for like two more hours. And I, <laughs> well, we'll see you soon. You're coming to And I'll see LA. you soon for part two of this I conversation. <laughs> and I won't ruin the surprise to the audience quite yet of what part two is, but it is quite interactive. <laughs> I can't wait. Quite interactive. <laughs> I'm just going to so keep excited. saying that so you tune in. Quite interactive. <laughs> Gotta tune in. I can And wait. mortifying and exciting. <laughs> and we will be living out the new frontier of relationship in vivo. Oh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Thank you, my love. Where can people find more of access to your wisdom? Thank you. Well, I'm on Instagram, um, Danae.Logan, and my partner in crime, Vanessa Bennett, and I have a podcast in a community called the Cheaper Than Therapy Podcasting Community. So you can find us there, and we run groups throughout the week all the time. Uh, please tune in, join, and you have a book coming out. I do next year. You need to be announcing your book. I do. My book is Woo! coming out next year. <laughs> I know. Can you give us the title? It's called Sovereign Love. And it's a guy healing. Sovereign love. 
We are sovereign in our loving. (laughs) Yes. And it's all about these relationship dynamics that we're talking about. So all that, those mic drop wisdom moments will be collected in this book (laughs) for those of us to more deeply absorb. Yes. Thank you so much, love. Mm, I'll see you soon. (laughs) All right. We will be parting in person soon. (laughs) All right. Thank you all so much for listening to The Gently Used Human. Stay tuned for a lot more fun and wisdom coming your way. Thank you for listening to The Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.